This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki in New Plymouth, thanks to New Zealand On Air. For more local content, search for accessradiotaranaki.com. Morning New Zealand, welcome to Neville Rides Boundaries and I'm Neville Wallace broadcasting from Hara coming to you from Access Radio Taranaki, Coast Access Radio, Radio Hawks Bay and Arrow Radio Masterton. On the show today I have only two interviews as Barbara Currigut was in a bad reception area and unable to do an interview. But I do have Brian Leyland, an electrical engineering consultant and our regular weatherman Philip Duncan. Let's start with Brian Leyland, an Auckland electrical engineering consultant, discussing our present electrical setup and the alternatives to our present electrical supply. Brian Leyland, I read that you're a New Zealand-based consulting engineer with experience in all aspects of the power industry. Would you care to elaborate and tell us how you do that and relax at the same time? <laughs> Good morning. It's, it's nice to be here. Well, I've been in the power industry since 1956, and uh, I worked for the Auckland Electric Power Board for a few years as a cadet engineer, and as soon as I graduated, I got on a yacht to Tahiti, and then got on the bounty. They were making mutiny on the bounty with Marlon Brando in Tahiti, so I first got on as an extra and then as crew. So I sailed on to San Francisco as one of the crew, which was quite something. I crossed the equator on a full-rigged sailing ship. And then I wandered through North America and England and Europe and then went off to Mauritius for a year, which was very interesting. Came back to England and then went to Cyprus for two years. And then just as a fill-in job, before I went back to New Zealand, I went to Sierra Leone to commission a little hydro scheme. But um, I bumped into an English volunteer teacher. <laughs> so instead of coming back to New Zealand, we went off to England and got married and spent a year at university. And then we went out to Malaya for a year on the way home. And I've been back in New Zealand since 1970. In 1974, I set up my own consulting firm and uh, retired from consulting engineering, sort of, uh, in 2002. Since then, I just worked from home on jobs that interest me, mostly in hydropower, but I've been involved in wave power and wind power and solar power and diesel power and gas turbines and steam stations, just about everything. So I've got a, a very wide experience. And uh, about 25 years ago, I realized the people who were promoting global warming didn't like nuclear power, which seemed to be rather strange. So I uh, looked a bit further and realized the whole thing uh, was the biggest hoax in the history of the world. Oh, well, let's get on to something in hand, Brian, and that's farming. And they seem to be blamed for every perceived carbon emission. How do you see it? Is it more political than any other reason? Well, I think it's crazy. And the first thing is we've signed the Paris Agreement 
and says we shouldn't do anything that will reduce agricultural productivity. And everything we're doing in the farming does just that, or pretty well. So from that point of view, why are we doing it when if we reduce productivity, it'll be made up overseas with more emissions? It just doesn't make sense. I, I don't understand it, and I don't understand why people are pushing it. But then if you go further than that and look at the evidence for methane being a dangerous greenhouse gas, it doesn't exist. There's a whole lot of figures for how bad methane is. Some say it's a factor of 100 times worse than carbon dioxide. Some say it's 28. Some say it's, it's 7. We're working on a figure of 28 when the IPCC has recently said it's 7. So why haven't we switched to 7? I don't know. At seven, it's not a problem. You don't even bother doing anything about it. So none of it makes sense. It's all weird, weird, weird. Right. Has anyone ever died from the effects of nitrogen, Brian? From nitrogen? Nitrogen, yeah. Um, I have heard weird stories that too much nitrogen fertilizer does damage, but I'm, I'm oh, not. Yeah. I mean, no direct evidence, and I, the stories weren't very convincing anyway. Now, when it comes to the commission that's been appointed by the government to look into farming emissions, there's not one farming rep there. Have you had anything to do with that commission at all? No. How farming should look at it? No. First thing it should do is try and establish if there's a problem, and the answer would be no. Right. So at the moment we've got uh, great promotion, and we've even started up here, and I would call it the bite, Taranaki bite. They want mm. to put in a wind farm or wind turbines. What's your thoughts on this one? Because out on the water, it must be a lot more expensive to build them and maintain these beasts. What's your thoughts on that one? It's hugely expensive. There's thousands of megawatts of offshore wind farms in uh, the North Sea and around there, and they're all turning out to be less reliable than expected and more expensive than expected. But they're all on piles into the seabed because the water's only about 30 metres deep or shallower. But any that we put in have to be so-called floating wind farms. So each wind turbine is carried on a, a floating vessel, which has to be pretty substantial, otherwise it'll blow over. And then you've got to moor it to the bottom, which has got its own set of problems. So it's even more expensive. And then you've got to have a ship to maintain the things, and you can only do it in calm weather. And... Uh, the ship's got to be able to lift lift off a blade if for repair or lift off a generator. So it's huge and hugely expensive. But we'll only have a few hundred wind turbines and have a ship on constant standby to maintain these when they need maintaining it. It's ridiculous. I mean, I'll be busy 25 or 30% of the time, but won't be earning much money, so it'll... What's the cost it of building? Any productive hours. Yeah, what's the cost of building those machines as well, Brian? Because they've got a lot of um, concrete, there's a lot of rare minerals in them, isn't there? 
Oh yeah, there's, there's enormous problems in the building of them and in the way that they use up uh, resources of cobalt and things. The generators are typically permanent magnets with rare earth magnets and all sorts of things. It's huge. The, the tons of stuff per megawatt hour of output is much, much greater than other conventional generation. And then they've only got a life of about 25 years, maybe uh, 20, maybe less. Right. My, I, uh, my wife and I, majority owners of a small hydropower station, it's now been running for 20 years. The generating plant is 100 years old, and we expect it to continue for another 20 years at least. And here's these wind farms, it's, you know, they wouldn't even last as long as my station already has. Yeah. Now, Brian, I just read the other day that there's 400 hectares being covered with solar panels for Christchurch Airport to charge their aircraft whenever they get <laughs> rechargeable engines, batteries, power sources. How do you see that? Because that's about 1,200 cows gone for starters. The whole thing's crazy. Electric aircraft is crazy. One developer has abandoned them because he discovered that the batteries could last about 140 flights. That's oh. many flights. <laughs> I haven't heard any more about that, but there's certainly a, the, uh, the batteries will wear out long before the plane does, and then you've got to replace all the batteries. Then you've yeah. got a, the problem that the, the landing weight is the same as the takeoff weight. And conventional planes can't land with a full load of fuel. They have to spill it all off before they oh. land. <laughs> That's very oh, interesting. It, it, any rational outfit would be saying, let's let's sit on our hands and see what happens overseas before we get involved in this crazy adventure. I don't know why they're doing it. No, we, uh, we've changed houses because we had one uh, two-story Stairs, and I found with age, they were getting troublesome. So we got a uh, all-one-level house now. But prior to that, we uh, had solar panels. But what I noticed with those solar panels, they were on a lease basis. But when the uh, we got cheaper power, I noticed that the uh, drainage from those batteries was going back into the national grid. Mm. So I don't know how they worked out, but. Anyway, let's move on to pumped storage. What's your thoughts on this one, Brian? Pumped storage has been around for a long time, and traditionally it's there to steady up the load on nuclear power stations. Nuclear power stations don't react well to <coughs> to reduce generation. It poisons a reactor, and it takes a few days for it to pick up the full load again. So it's costs a lot of money to force a nuclear station to reduce load. And if you can instead use the load pumping water up the hill, you're actually doing something which does good to the nuclear station and to the energy system. And those pump storage stations store water for eight to ten hours. They work on a, on a daily cycle and they change mode rapidly in order to stabilize the system. And it all works. But when you come to wind and solar power, you're faced with, with what they call wind droughts that might last a week. 
So instead of having enough storage for six, ten hours, it's got to have enough storage for at least a week. And that's a big, big storage lake. Yeah. And then you've got to have another lake at the bottom to store the water when you've used it so you can bump it back up again. So you need two big storage lakes. They need to be reasonably about 400 to 600 metres in elevation difference. And they don't need to be too far apart. And such things are very, very difficult to find. So in theory it works, but in practice it's too difficult to find the suitable sites. Right, so... And then there's Onslow, which is another different story yeah. altogether. Now let's look at nuclear generation, Brian. What's the uh, cost of these machines? Because I've discussed this with uh, Tom Sheehan, and he said that they've got uh, units now that would fit on the back of a dirty big truck if you wanted to, in other words, take around. You wouldn't need to have a series of transmission lines all over the country. Are you talking about nuclear power now? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they, they, these micro-nuclear are quite interesting for isolated areas. I mean, there's thousands of places in the world that rely on diesel generators, and all of those would be candidates for a micro or mini-nuclear. So there's quite a big potential, and of course, diesel power is expensive, so they, have, they, they can be quite expensive and still much better than diesel power. Well, what's the cost of building a general uh, setup of those? Because you've got, you read it, wrote an interesting article for the uh, Net Zero, an English magazine, mm -hmm. or not magazine, newsletter, I suppose you could say. Yeah, yeah. And the nuclear will last quite a long time in yeah, yeah. relation to your uh, wind turbines. Yeah. Or solar panels. Yeah. 60 to 80 years. Very long time. So would they be, uh, would the cost of those be able to be paid off before they needed replacing again? Oh, yes. I would think that's definitely possible. Uh, but we don't know what the cost is because there's two big unknowns. One, we haven't got into serial production. So we don't understand the manufacturing costs yet. But the other is the whole regulatory regime makes it almost hugely difficult to get through all the regulations. And the regulations are set up for the distant past of 40 years ago when every nuclear power station was big and it was different from the previous one because the technology was evolving. So now when you get into a stage where you... Um, mass manufacturing, small reactors that cannot melt down from the fundamental physics. No matter what you do to them, they will not melt down. You can uh, you say, why, why are we bothering to regulate them all any more than we do a steam station or a hydropower station or anything like that? And, and for that matter, if you only look at hydropower stations, the regulations on the safety of large dams are uh, uh, very, very weak. It worries me a lot, and I'm involved in that internationally. Because and, I just saw... Uh, I despair, and it's not being taken seriously. I just saw a portion today where the Fukushima, of course, are releasing some of that uh, 
contaminated water from around the place. What's your thoughts on that? Because everybody seems to be up in arms about things nuclear, yet they're quite, Ockers are quite happy to have five nuclear submarines put down on their neck of the woods too, aren't they? It's, it's weird. And on the paper this morning, there was a sociologist objecting to the biological effects. Well, she was just dreaming things up. And she had no evidence or any of this, no evidence. And then the amount of radiation in the water, it's been diluted so much because I think they're recirculating seawater to dilute it. It's got hardly any more radiation, if at all, than the seawater surrounding it. And, and certainly no more than is um, included in the cooling water from an ordinary conventional seaside nuclear station. So there's, there's just no way, if you look at the evidence, can it be a problem? Right. Not in just any, any direction. We'll finish off with, uh, Brian, that Tongan eruption we had, when was that? About a couple of years back, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Tossed up a heck of a lot of water into the atmosphere. Is it all saying what goes up must come down? Is that why we're getting such horrible weather at the moment? Very likely. Um I just read a paper this morning that said that it's likely to go on for five years. It was next in size to Krakatoa as a a volcanic explosion. And it held enormous amounts of water into the upper atmosphere, as you said. And it's quite credible that all the foul weather that we're getting all over the world at the moment is a result of Hong Tonga, not man-made global warming, which is bullshit anyway. That's un, uh, un, sort of unrealised that the younger generation don't know much about the uh, ring of, or Pacific Ring of Fire. Is, is that understood very well nowadays? Oh, yes, and there are heaps of volcanoes, and about 60 or 80 percent are submarine, and we don't know too much about them. No. Well, Brian, thank you for your time today. That was a very interesting insight as to what our energy requirements will be for the future. So go well, my friends, and look forward to having another chat with you. That'll be good. It'll be nice talking to you. You've just tuned in. You're listening to Neville Rides the Boundaries, coming to you from Access Radio Taranaki, and I'm Neville Wallace. Next, I catch up with Philip Duncan from weatherwatch.co.nz, and Philip is predicting spells of cloudy weather, and the science of weather learning so we can understand what the weather ahead will be so we can all cope better with weather changes. Good morning, Philip Dunker. What's the weather ahead for us? I just read the uh, Farmers Weekly. It's a bit of a gloom and doom situation at the moment. Yeah, it is, it is. We've got this uh, anti-cyclonic gloom. At, well, we've had a lot of it lately. And for those, you know, like you and I, who live, you know, I live in Auckland and West Auckland and you live in Taranaki, uh, both of these regions stick out to the west and are very exposed to low cloud that comes off the Tasman Sea. So when we think of high pressure, we usually think of beautiful sunny weather and dry weather. But the reality is, in winter, high pressure zones can make low cloud, fog and 
drizzle patches. And so places like Taranaki and Auckland and Waikato, they can be quite cloudy and gloomy. And we've seen a lot of that weather over the last couple of weeks. Probably will change at the end of this week as we get the nor'westers coming back in again. And we're going to spring with a low-pressure zone forming and a bit of sort of instability. But what we are noticing not just this last week, but over the last few weeks, is a lot more in the way of high pressure around New Zealand, and that is helping to dry things out very slowly, but we are seeing places in the east and the north slowly, slowly starting to dry out. But the downside is that we've had a bit of a reduction in our sunshine hours because of this cloudier weather that we're getting. So not raining as much, but maybe a little bit gloomy still. Now, Philip... We hear the younger generation talking about climate change as if it's something drastic. Now, what sort of education system covers, I was going to use the word meteorology, but perhaps I should say the weather ahead so people can understand your thoughts on this aspect, Philip. You know, when I was at primary school and high school, we both learned, both of those schools, we learned about... uh, Geography and weather. We talked about climate, uh, but you know, mostly climate was talking about weather uh, plus weather equals climate sort of thing. So, you know, yeah. lots and lots of days of weather equals climate. That's what we were taught. The kids nowadays are taught about climate change. It's very different, and it's a, it's a lot more political. And so you find that people, a lot of children are taught, taught that the world is ending. It's all doom and gloom. Uh, there is some truth to that. I mean, there is some truth that the world's pollution is out of control. Whether or not New Zealand can do anything about countries like India and China, I don't know. They're the ones that pollute the most. But to me, the biggest change has been away from the science of weather and more about the pollution of climate change and that's why you see a lot of children that are very stressed and they cry a lot about climate change and I think it's really, it's a shame because it's a missed opportunity to educate children a lot more about how we ha- we can control some things and other things we can't um, not to say that we should be defeatist but I, I actually think that we should be adapting a lot more to climate change because crying about it and being upset about it and going into protests about it doesn't actually change much and so you're better off to actually adapt and that doesn't mean accepting the worst and rolling over, Um, not at all in fact we in New Zealand are very good at adapting, we actually want to live in a clean country whereas other countries, maybe they don't care as much but I know in New Zealand most Kiwis I speak to very much want a clean country so we can therefore tackle climate change but also educate people about how the weather works, and also the mathematics of it, that even if every single New Zealander was clean and green perfectly, the world will still be more polluted because of other countries. So, again, it's not about being defeatist, but it's about just being factual about it. It's no different than war. You know, New Zealand didn't go to World War II thinking that we could beat Germany on our own. And so it's it's a little bit like that. It's a team effort with, with everything. And I think if we look at climate change the way we look at world war, I think it makes a lot more sense about how we fix this problem. But I think it all starts with just a basic understanding of what weather is and what climate is and the fact that the world has always been changing. That's not to say that climate change is something we ignore, but that there is also some element of normalness to the world changing and and, and understanding that man is making it faster is probably an important thing to learn as well. Oh, well done. Thank you, Philip Duncan. And the listeners can always pick up their Weather Watch app as well as the rural weather. So thank you, Philip.
Many thanks, Neville. Talk to you again next week. Certainly will. As a footnote to Brian Leyland's discussion, here's a small paragraph from an article Brian Leyland wrote for the, well, I call it the London Telegraph. In the Western world, the construction of large modern reactors has suffered from poor project management, financing problems and regulatory delays that have resulted in major overruns and cost and time. This need not have happened as the Chinese are successfully building similar reactors. More than 50 reactors are under construction right now and even more are planned. The Western world needs to get its act together. Many different designs of small modular reactors which are built on a production line basis. Just as a footnote to a footnote, remember how we used to keep our pound of butter in the refrigerator conditioner to make it soft? Nowadays, refrigerated butter spreads easily. Well, that's the show for today. Let's finish our day with Lynn Edwards singing, May You Never Be Alone Like Me. Take it away, Evie. Like a bird that's lost its maiden flight I'm alone and also blue tonight Like a piece of driftwood on the sea Radio Taranaki in New Plymouth. 
thanks to New Zealand On Air. For more local content, search for accessradiotaranaki.com.